Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, you should have found it by now, so if nothing else. I read a Gallup poll recently that said uh, a very discouraging thing when it comes to the church and God's people. It said in, in 2019, they reported that only 36% of Americans viewed organized religion with a great deal of confidence. And that's down from 68% in 1975. That's a 47% drop in the last 50 years or so. The decline in confidence in churches has also been accompanied with a steep decline in, in membership and in attendance at the local churches. Uh, Ten years ago, for example, 2011, 43% of Americans claimed that they went to church every week, at least once a week. By February of 2020, that had dropped 14% to 29%. That's a 33% drop in one decade. When the, when the reasons are tried, when they try to determine what the reasons are for that, uh, it's not necessarily the big scandals that have happened in recent times, which, are, which have happened, but primarily that people think, uh, who, who identify as Christians now, say that they practice their faith uh, more at home and in, in informal ways. 44% say they simply do not want to be involved with the local church. Uh, another 38% say they simply don't like something about church services they go to. So a large share of Christians are opting to go it alone, to live their Christian life without the body of Christ, without the fellowship of others in that regard. They're so private in their faith that not even the church can reach them. And that is dropping like a rock. It's not another decade or so we'll be in the same ballpark as England and the rest of Europe as far as church attendance and so forth goes, if that continues. That's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Especially in light of the fact of the teaching of Scripture. You can find no place in the Bible, anywhere in the New Testament, where there's any, any thought of a Christian who did not function within a local church that wasn't part of a body of Christ. That, that kind of Christian simply does not exist in the New Testament at all. And if there's a, a capstone passage of Scripture that deals with that, it's 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. That, that everything about these three chapters uh, is about the body of Christ and our involvement there. In other words, you cannot even read these chapters with any sense of understanding without being involved vitally in a body of Christ somewhere that simply does not compute. And so as we turn to these passages of Scripture here today, we're, we're moving deeply uh, through this book, and we've seen throughout the book of 1 Corinthians that this church at Corinth is uh, extremely immature. They're a bunch of babies. This is really a messed up church, and you need to keep that in mind. And remember, Paul never told him, well, quit going to church. He said, yes, this church is messed up. Let's do something about it. And so that's kind of the thrust that he goes for. But the reasons why they're immature, why they're spiritual babies, uh, could be a number of reasons, but they, it wasn't because they lacked spiritual gifts, because in chapter 1, verse 7, it said they had all the spiritual gifts. And we're going to be looking at that together in the days to come in this, past, this section of Scripture. It's not because they lacked learning, because in chapters 1 to 3, they had so much learning that uh, Paul had to say, listen, listen you're, getting, you're getting arrogant with your learning, with your knowledge, and you need to pull it back into the knowledge of Christ. And it's not because of lack of good teaching. After all, the apostle Paul himself had founded the church and taught them for a year and a half. Apollos had been there. He's a marvelous teacher of the word. They'd had some of the best teachers uh, possible. 
And it wasn't lack of good theology. As we saw in chapter 11, verse 2, the one of the few things Paul could praise them for was because of their theological stance. They, they, were, they had good theology. We've noticed here at the church in recent years that a number of people that start coming to our church, uh, first of all, checked us out on our websites, and they've taken a good look at our theological statement. We have uh, almost everybody who comes here says you have the longest theological statement I've ever seen uh, compared to a church. Most people have about five points. We have five pages. But uh, nevertheless, as they read through the theological statement, uh, they, uh, they often will come and say, well, I'll check it out. The theology seems to be in line. Let's see what the church is about. And they come as a result of that. So if Corinth had a, a web page with a theological statement on it, people would read their statement and say, this is a good church. I think I'll show up. And when they got there, they're going to be deeply disappointed because of how most of these people were living in this church. So why were they spiritual babies? Well, I think there's a number of reasons, but in our sections that we're going to look at now, these passages, we're going to see that they, they didn't understand a number of things. First of all, they did not understand the purpose of the church. They didn't understand how the Lord formed it and how it was to function. Secondly, they didn't understand the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think they thought they did, but they didn't understand how the Holy Spirit ministered. And so the Apostle Paul is going to look at those things with them and try to teach them the truth and remove their ignorance so that they can live in obedience. And so as we start chapter 12 today, uh, we see at the heart of their problems a num number of misunderstandings uh, concerning vital things. First and foremost, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's start with verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Let's start with the, this, the first words now concerning. What we know about the book of 1 Corinthians is it's a letter. We often talk about Paul's epistles, and that's correct. But another word for that is letters. And you think of a letter in more informal sense. This church had written Paul uh, a number of questions, and Paul is responding to those questions. In the process, he adds a lot of other material as well. But five different times he uses this line here, now concerning the things you have written to me, and so let's real quickly look at those. Go back to chapter 7, verse 1. Before he answered their first question, he gave them six chapters. So Paul liked to do that kind of thing. But he says, now concerning the things which you wrote. <laughs> so here's what you asked me, and here I'm going to tell you. So this first section is about uh, marriage and all that was involved with that. All of chapter 7 deals with so many details that we've looked at. Then we go over to chapter uh, 7 verse 28 and a specific issue concerning virgins now concerning virgins so he's talking about single women in the church going as they were going through a very difficult time in church history persecution and so forth abounding what should we do about these single women in the church they ask that question and Paul gives them an answer then we go over to chapter 8 verse 1 he says now concerning things sacrificed to idol they lived in an environment where uh, there was a lot of sacrifices being given to idols. That's a whole, whole pagan environment they lived in. And a big issue was, what, what are we supposed to do about that? Are we supposed to eat the meat sacrificed to idols? Should we go to the temples? What, what should we do? And Paul addresses that in chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Then we come over to chapter 12, verse 1, and, and we find the next issue concerns spiritual gifts. We'll look at that today and the days ahead. And then chapter 16, verse 1, he has another issue, and that concerns collection of offerings. In verse 1, it says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And he's going to give us one of the most important sections in the scriptures, I believe, on giving towards the Lord's work. And then in chapter 16, verse 12, he wants to talk about Apollos. 
It says, now concerning Apollos, our brother. Now remember, chapter 1, he began by talking about the division in the church in relationship to himself and Apollos. And unless he leaves his letter, stops his letter and walks away, leaving them with a bad taste about Apollos, he wants to let them know that there's nothing wrong with Apollos. It's their reaction is what they had done with the leadership, dividing up over these celebrity, uh, what they thought were celebrities. And he wanted to let them know that Apollos was certainly a servant of Christ. So these are the answers to those questions that they had sent him. And going back to chapter 12, we pick up this, this fourth one, I believe, in this list of six. And he says, not concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. And now I want you to note something else. We're not moving very fast, are we? Look at the word gifts. If you have a New American Standard Bible, which you should have, it's, 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 it's ordained. Uh, it, you'll notice it's in italics. That means it's not there. You will not find that in the ESV, for example, which I like, that, that but, a translation. But you'll find that they don't do these kinds of things. The New American Standard puts it in italics, which means it's not there. That means it's supplied by the translators in order to help us understand it better. But in this case, they made a mistake, I believe. And here's why I think that is true. The word here is not charismata, which is gifts. It's pneumatica, which is spiritual. Is a totally different word. He uses the word charismata starting in verse 4 when he starts talking specifically about spiritual gifts. But before he gets to spiritual gifts, he wants to talk about that which is behind spiritual gifts, the spirituals. And a better translation probably would be that uh, I, I want write, to write to you about spiritual things or the things of the Spirit. And so what was missing here in this church was not gifts. We've seen that. We'll see that going forward. But he, what is missing is the purpose for those gifts, the understanding of how they function and why they function. They had totally misunderstood this. The most gifted church in the New Testament that had all the spiritual gifts, according to chapter 1, was a mess because it didn't understand how the Holy Spirit operated in regard to the spiritual gifts and other things as well. Paul is going to unpack that. Something to keep in mind as we go through. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all in the uh, genre of correction. It's all correction. He is correcting them for going in the wrong directions concerning these things. To get that in, uh, handle on that to begin with will help you a great deal in interpreting and understanding and applying these, these uh, texts of Scripture that we'll look at together. Now, how did Paul know, by the way, that they were mishandling their spiritual gifts and so forth and were under, not understanding the pneumatica, the spiritual things? He knew it because they uh, were misusing their spiritual gifts. They were, as we look at the whole book as a whole, we find they were in competition over spiritual gifts. Some thinking some were better than others and they were in competition. Spiritual gifts were ne are never meant to be something to compete over. Uh, they were using their gifts to build themselves up and rather than others. And as we'll see later on, no, no spiritual gift, not a single one, is meant to build up ourselves. Not meant to build up our spiritual life. They're all meant to give away. They're all gifts meant to encourage and edify others, not ourselves. And they missed that whole point. They, they also, thirdly, were desiring the showy gifts. They wanted to have the gifts that would put them up front especially the gifts of tongues, because it was very vocal, very upfront, and they desired that 
immensely. Paul will correct that a little bit in chapter 12. Look at it in chapter 13 and says, it will tell us that they will disappear in time. And then chapter 14, he corrects the abuses concerning tongues there. And so that's coming. But they wanted the showy gifts. They wanted to be outstanding. They wanted people to look at them. They wanted to be seen. And then uh, he knew they were messed up because they were, their gifts were used to cause chaos and confusion in the church services. Uh, this church is uh, out of control. I'll look at that in a moment. And finally, they were using their gifts selfishly. It's all about them, not about others. And chapter 12 talks about that in great detail. Then in verse 2, you know that when... Okay, yeah. okay, let me finish verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now concerning spirituals, I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were, we were, you were pagans, unbelievers... You were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now let me read that last line again. However you were led. He is saying you were led astray by the influences of a world dominated by the demonic, by the pagan. That's the way you used to be. That's the way all unbelievers are. All unbelievers are under the influence of a demonic world controlled by the devil himself. And that's the way we expect unbelievers to live, but not Christians. But he's saying to these people that that's the way you were, but you haven't changed very much. You're, continue, you're bringing the pagan world, the pagan influence, the pagan understandings into the church. And part of that is happening right in the midst of your worship services. And he begins to talk about that in verse 3. And he'll talk about it a lot in chapter 14. But look at verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The picture here he's starting to touch on is a, a worshiper's out of control in a static states of speech and behavior. Historians of this period of time tell us that the mystery religions of Greece, uh, their devotees of those mystery religions were caught up in emotional hysteria. They were falling on the ground prostate. They were babbling in ecstasy in speech. They were speaking in tongues, although their speaking in tongues was not a biblical tongues of language. It was simply babble, simply gibberish, but it's very common in that time. Plato writes about it. Uh, Virgil, who lived just before Christ, wrote about it and wrote about these experiences. And that's how people worship in the pagan world. It was, a world, it was an out of control, ecstasy, a passion, enthusiasm to, to the nth degree, but it was a, a worship of pagan gods. Now, Paul comes back to, the, to them in verse 3, and he's saying, you're bringing that same kind of thing into the church. You're bringing, bringing that same, you're confusing, now get this, you're confusing passion and enthusiasm and excitement for true godly worship and behavior. And that's easy to do. It's very easy to confuse revival with revivalism. If you want to know what revivalism is, look back in the 1800s and you find out this second, so-called second great awakening that devastated the church by taking the, the word of God out of their hands and replacing it with enthusiasm and excitement and methodologies. And the church has never really recovered from that in, in many ways. Now we see that today wherever where, where we look around. We have a lot of confusion on what it means to truly worship God. 
And we have to leave room for many different expressions of that. And we don't want to say there's only one way to, to worship God and it's our way and no other way. I think there's going to be many expressions and many cultures and so forth. But be very careful, folks, that you don't confuse enthusiasm with spiritual passion, true spiritual passion. I get a lot of ads in, news, in my magazines and in my internet feeds for Bible conferences. There are Bible conferences all over the country. Seems like there's a big one every week of thousands of people attending these things, which confuses me a great deal from what I started out with in this message. As, atten as atten attendance and membership in churches tank, thousands upon thousands are going to Bible conferences all over the country. Something isn't computing quite right. Why are people so enthusiastic about going to Bible conferences, supposed Bible conferences, and don't, all of them aren't equal, but they're not enthusiastic about being involved in their local church where the Lord calls us to be? What, what's going on with that? And I don't have a perfect answer for that. I'd like to have somebody do a good survey to find out more about that. But I am confused by, I get a lot of ads for young people's conferences, especially, you know, college age and early 20s and so forth. And the picture that they always show at the front to entice people to come is a bunch of young people who, are, who have their hands in the air, their eyes shut, their mouths open, either shouting or, or singing very loudly. And that is supposed to be the draw of this great passionate spiritual experience you're going to have. Now, I don't know what's going on in all those places, nor do I pretend to know. But I know this. That is not necessarily, and that has, that has not been historically, the expression of worship of God's people throughout the centuries. And it's very easy to confuse this big passion, this excitement, with the real deal. And exhibit A for that is the Church of Corinth. You would never get bored of the Church of Corinth. The Church of Corinth uh, had, there were, there were four people over here preaching. There was five over here speaking in tongues. There, there was a, a women out of control and, and interrupting the, the leadership. There were women actually dressed like prostitutes, trying to look trendy of, of the day, in the day. And they were all coming to church. And nobody came to Corinth at the church there and said, this is boring. But they weren't worshiping God. They were out of control. They, their passions were controlling them, not, their, not the Holy Spirit. And that's something that has to be examined and looked at in our own lives as we think about that. But this is what Paul's talking about. He says, you understand the spiritual gifts. At least you know what they are. You don't understand the pneumatica behind it, the Holy Spirit behind it. And I'm here to tell you what it's about. So it was a circus at Corinth. So Paul says such action cannot be the work of the Holy Spirit for two reasons. Here's why he's saying this pagan style of worship that you brought into the church is not of the Holy Spirit, and there's two reasons for it. Number one, when the Holy Spirit is in charge, the believer is always in control. Always. Go to chapter 14, verse 23, or 32. He gets to that later. 14.32, he says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That means people can, tr can control themselves. Verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. When the Holy Spirit is in charge of a life, or of a worship service, or of anything, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a place of confusion. 
and disorder and people out of control. After all, Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse 23 tells us that one facet of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so whenever you find someone out of control, whether it's their temper, their emotions, their worship, whatever it might be, you know they're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They're under, they're under a different influence, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Secondly, when the Holy Spirit is in control, he honors Christ. Going back to chapter 12 and verse 3 for just a moment, he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of Christ, for the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now let me talk to you about this a bit. In the first century, uh, the emperor worship was big. And everybody in the Roman Empire worshipped Caesar as Lord. You are required every year to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And if you didn't, you faced persecution. And a great deal of people faced persecution. Uh, think about it for a moment in a contemporary sense, because we have a lot of dictators around the world today, but in, in the news lately has been Putin. So let's say uh, uh, Putin, somebody stands up, a Christian stands up in Moscow and says, Putin is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. How do you think it'll go for him? Probably not real well. Well, it's really a lot worse during a time when Caesar actually thought he was Lord, that he was a, a god, and he was to be worshipped as a god. And so that, that's what they were facing at that time. So when we come along to this verse of Scripture, and he says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, you get an idea of what they're talking about. Now this does not mean, don't misunderstand, this does not mean that an unbeliever cannot say verbally that Jesus is Lord. As somebody once said when, to me, if, if I could take 50 bucks and go down on a street corner and find a drunk or somebody high, almost out of their mind, I say, I'll give you 50 bucks. If you say out loud, Jesus is Lord, they'll say Jesus is Lord. He's not talking about verbally, verbally doing this. He's talking about a life, who, a person who proclaims Jesus as Lord and Master of life. You cannot do that unless the Holy Spirit is in charge of your life. And you will never, of course, curse him if he's in charge. But I want you to go back to John for just a moment. John chapter 16. I want to fill this out a little bit. John chapter 16. Speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which they misunderstood terribly. Chapter 16 and, and verse 7 of John. Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Now verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak uh, in his own initiative, but whoever he, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Here it is. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. When the Holy Spirit is in charge of anything, Churches, ministries, individuals. He always, always, always glorifies Jesus Christ. He never glorifies himself. He never points to himself. And so when you find a ministry of any kind 
that is pointing to Holy Spirit and glorifying the Holy Spirit and speaking all Holy Spirit this and Holy Spirit that, you know you're in the wrong place. Because when the Holy Spirit is at work, he glorifies Jesus Christ, not himself. That is his ministry. And so as we go back to Corinth, we see these people just simply didn't understand that. They didn't understand that the Holy Spirit, when in charge of their lives, would lead them to say, Jesus is Lord. They missed the point and understanding of the Holy Spirit. St. Patrick's Day was a few days ago. Some of you might have saw some videos or pictures of different uh, buildings, especially in Ireland, I think some other places too, that uh, were highlighted in green. And there was these big floodlights that, that flooded these beautiful buildings with green light so that they were green. Now, if you saw those, though, you saw they were beautiful. But you didn't glorify the lights. You glorified the building that they were showcasing. It wasn't the job of the lights to show themselves off. It was their job to, to showcase the building. The Holy Spirit's ministry is not to show himself off. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to show off Jesus Christ. So Paul is working hard to get them in that ballpark. Second thing they didn't understand uh, was the ministry of the Godhead itself. The ministry of God himself, the whole Godhead, verses 4 to 6, talk about that. Now, we know this is a divided church, right? They're divided over personalities. They're divided over uh, social standing. They're divided over gifts. They're divided over money. Paul's given them a lot of solutions to all these issues. He, he has told them that they are nothing in themselves. Christ is everything in chapter 1. He's told them they're servants and instruments of God. They're not the big show. He has told them not to, not to make celebrities out of individuals, that Christ is the only celebrity in the church of Christ. He's told them that all Christians are the temples of the Holy Spirit, not just a few are outstanding. He has told them all sorts of things. Now he comes to the Godhead, and he wants to say this, that when we glorify ourselves, we are out of line with what the ministry of, of the Holy Spirit and of God in general. We see here in verses 4 to 6 a division of ministry within the Godhead. Let me say two things about that before we actually look at the text. Number one, in order to do a task, we need certain things. We need tools, we need an assignment, and we need the energy. So if I wanted to sweep a floor, I need a broom, I need a floor, and I need the energy or strength to do it, right? So those are the three things you need. The Spirit as far as Christians are concerned, gives us the tools, the Lord gives us the task, and the Father gives us the energy. That's what he's going to talk about here. So as he moves into the Godhead, we find each member of the, of the Godhead has a specific task when it comes to our service for him. And I, even as I say that, I have to be very careful because I want to make sure you understand there's only one God. There's not three gods. And the, God, and the persons within the Godhead are never at odds. They never disagree with one another. They're, they're never ha they never have different opinions. And every, everything that one does, the others cooperate with in harmony. It's not a, a pure division. But at the same time, according to the consistency of their place in the Godhead, they have certain tasks for us. So that's what he's talking about here. That's heavy stuff there. But this part gets down to what he's talking about. Look at the Holy Spirit, first of all. Verse 4, now there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Keep in mind, he's talking about the functions of the body of Christ. 
And the, the easiest metaphor to understand all this is the actual physical human body, which is how, why he's going to develop that throughout chapter 12 in particular. It's the perfect metaphor. Now we talk about the church being a family and a community and a bride. Those are metaphors that can all fit in scripture, all draw from scripture, but there's no metaphor like the body of Christ and how it functions. So Paul deals with it a great deal here. When we think about the body, Every, every aspect of our body has its particular uh, purpose, right? The heart pumps blood. The stomach doesn't. The stomach is a bad heart pumper, blood pumper. But it's pretty good at digesting. So the stomach does its job, the heart does its job. When all of our organs are, are functioning properly, we're healthy. When, our, when one, even one of our organs misfunction or malfunctions, then we're not healthy. That's the way the body works. That's his metaphor he's using. Outwardly, as he talks later on about hands and feet, uh, the feet are given the gift of walking, right? Hands don't do that very well. You ever try to walk on your hands? Uh, I used to do that when I was younger, stronger, dumber. Uh, I, 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 could, I could stand on my hands, and I could walk a little bit. I quit doing that because every time I did that, I eventually fell over and hit a table with my feet and couldn't walk with my feet for a day or so. You know, eventually I figured out hands are not made to walk on. Feet are made to walk on. Hands have a different job. Hands are good at picking up things. You ever try to pick up things with your toes? It's hard. Now, I know some of you are going to talk to me after service, say, I can pick up things with my toes. And I'm simply going to say, you're a mutant. So, so, so don't, don't come to me with your toes. Uh, you're, there's something wrong with you, but, but that's not the normal, right? We pick up things. Even our hands are different. Some people, most people are right-handed. A few people are left-handed. And, of course, people that are left-handed remind us that the, the right side of the brain controls the left hand, so they're the only people in their right mind. Uh, we, we know that story, but, uh, you know, we ignore people who are left-handed as much as we can. Uh, the, the point is, every fun, part of the body has different functions, and even hands that are, are almost identical function differently. No, and so his point is going to be that no two Christians are exactly alike. No two Christians have the same giftedness and, and, and ministries. The Lord has uniquely gifted us in this way. The Holy Spirit, in this particular case, has gifted us as he chooses to do so. We're not alike. A crude example. is a chili cook-off. Now, Lisa, wherever you are, listen up. We, we haven't had a chili cook-off on Wednesday night yet. We need to have one of those. Okay, everybody makes chili different, right? So if you say, I'm going to have chili, we don't know what you're talking about. It's all different. Now, this is very crude. Not found in the Bible, by the way. Okay, but every, every recipe is a little different, right? And so God makes every recipe with you and I different. We're all unique in the body of Christ. We're all the same, the Holy Spirit desires that. Secondly, the Son, it says in verse 5, and there are a variety of ministries but, and the same Lord. Now, whenever we see Lord in the New Testament, that's a reference to Jesus, to the Son. And so he's speaking of that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it talks about the, the Christ himself assigning us a ministry. So the picture seems to be that the Lord himself assigns us a ministry the Holy Spirit works that out in our lives through giftedness, if we could use that human metaphor. Ministries in the New Testament commonly refer to how we serve. 
And that doesn't mean that it has to be an office. You may not have an office in this church. We're going to be appointing officers soon uh, at our business meeting for this next year. But you may not have an official office. But according to the New Testament, you have, no, you have a ministry. The Holy Spirit has gifted you, and the, and the Lord himself has assigned you a ministry within the church of Christ, or several such ministries within the church of Christ. We've been gifted then in order that we might serve, and the Lord has given us an assignment of how to do that. In my backyard, and a lot of you have seen this, and a lot of you have heard about it, I have a, a little cabin. I call it a cabin. It's kind of a man cave or a she shed without a she. I don't, I don't know what you call Just a little thing back there, but I like my cabin. I, I've got my, my lazy boy chair. I've got my heater. I've got my, my lamp. I've got my books. I go back there a lot to pray and read and study. I just really like my cabin. Some years ago, one of the guys here at the church, one of my friends, wired the cabin for me so I can run my heat and run my, my lamp and so forth. So I, but I have it wired into the house so that I have to turn on the switch in the house for it to come on. So I don't want some little neighborhood boy to go in there, turn my heater on, and leave it for three days. You know, I, I want to be able to control that. So what would happen if after I had it all wired up, ready to go, that I never turned on the switch? That it, it's, ready, it's all there, all the pieces are in place, but the power never gets to it, and therefore it does nothing. Wouldn't that have been a silly thing for me to have built the shed, put those things in there, had it wired, but never turn on the power? And you say, well, that's stupid, Gary. How stupid are you? Well, I'll talk to you about that later. You know, I, I, I don't know. But how, how ridiculous it would it be to think that the Holy Spirit has gifted you if you're a Christian and the Christ himself has assigned you ministries, but you never minister. That doesn't compute, does it? Why would the Lord do that? Well, he didn't do that. The choice is up to you. Are you going to minister as God has equipped you to minister? Now, when I say that, I want, to, I want to back off a little bit. I don't want to motivate you with guilt. Guilt is a bad motivator, and it's not the motivation found normally in Scripture. I don't want you to say, oh, man, now after that sermon, I'm going to have to sign up for the nursery. Well, we would be happy for you to sign up for the nursery and several other things, but, but that's not our, my point. I want you to know not only of the divine plan that God has, but I want you to know of the, of the delight of serving Christ, the absolute delight. I read a, 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 just this week a, a statement in another context that I think fits real well here. This guy said, do not hire a man, talking about working on a job, do not hire a man who does your work for money, but hire a man who does it for the love of it. Wow, what a difference. If you love what you're doing, what a difference that makes. I, I want to motivate you by love. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 13, isn't he? He's going to motivate us by love. Okay? When we're motivated by love, we want to serve. We want to minister. We want to be involved in the lives of people. And so as we look at these things, I don't want to motivate you by guilt. I want to make, motivate you by the love of Christ. And by the way, we are organizing our leadership, a whole list of ministries in our church so that you are aware of what is available. And if you know of some ministries that you think you could do or that maybe we ought to do, let your small group leaders know today or call me or something, and we would love to add that to the list. Let me quickly move to verse 6 and the Father. 
It says, now there are a variety of effects with the same God who works all things in all persons. The Lord gives the gifts and the Holy Spirit administrates them, but the Father produces the results. Back in chapter 3, he talked about this, how, how he had planted and Apollos had watered, but the Lord gave the increase. Remember that? You know, it's not up to us to have the increase. It's up to us to faithfully serve Christ. It's up to him to bring the increase as he desires, to produce the results as he desires. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That is a humbling thought. So as we think about all this today, I want, I want to close with a little, little illustration. Especially in light of the statistics I gave you at the beginning, how people are dropping away in, in droves from the Church of Christ. I read about a guy who saw in his neighborhood a sign of a in front of a house for sale. And the sign says this, I'm gorgeous inside. And as he looked at the house, he questioned. The house was run down. It was out of date. It had no curb appeal. The windows didn't seem right. The roof looked like it needed to be replaced. Weeds were in the driveway. It was a mess. And yet the sign says, I'm gorgeous. Come on in. Take a look. And he was intrigued. Maybe what's on the inside is a lot better than what I see on the outside. Could I use that as an illustration of the church? If you're looking for a perfect church, you better just go on to heaven now because you're not going to find one. There's people that come to our church and say, oh, you, your, church, your church has it all together. I always tell them, stay a little longer. <laughs> you'll, you'll find that's certainly not true. On the outside, and this is what a lot of people are seeing today, apparently, the church looks pretty messy. We're out of date. Our, our, We've we got, we got people that are, are messed up. We, most of us can't sing, and some of us think we can, and, and that's even worse. But the majority of us, can't, some of us have a hard time finding the key. You know, we're not great singers. Some, a few are, but not many. We're, we're not, uh, we don't have a great, all great personalities. We're all different. We all have different opinions and different views. We all stumble. We all stumble. And, and we all occasionally on time, especially when you get involved in the body of Christ, we hurt one another once in a while. We say things and we do things that, that cause some pain. Do you think the Lord knew that? When he put people like us together in a body of Christ? And has done so throughout the centuries? Of course he did. And yet this is where he works. And he works in the cubicle of, of the imperfect people. He works in a body to develop what he wants. On the outside it looks pretty bad. So on the inside it's not always that great. But the Lord is at work. Let me switch the metaphor. Another picture of the church is the bride of Christ. The Lord is developing a bride. She's not ready yet. She, she needs some more makeup. She needs a new hairdo. She needs a better gown. She probably needs to brush her teeth. The bride is not ready yet. But one day, she will be. And the Lord will show her gorgeous, beautiful. And the whole world will stand up and say, that's what Christ does with imperfect people. Because he is Lord. And he is Savior. Don't you want to be at that wedding? I do. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you now for this time in the Word. Uh, so many things here to look at. We pray these things are, are helpful to all of us, Lord, as we determine how you'd like for us to serve you. 
And we just thank you. We just give you all the praise that you have saved us from sin, that you have made us your own, that we're part of your bride, part of your body, and we can serve you in love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.